This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Gurren-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Dr. Hannah Tonkin, who is currently working at the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Thank you. I'd first of all like to thank the organisers of today's event, especially Ruvi. I know you've spent many months preparing for this. It really is very special to look around the room and see so many familiar faces, to look on the program, see many more familiar names, many people I'm looking forward to speaking to today, tomorrow. So thank you very much for, for bringing us together to celebrate Professor Goodwin-Gill's scholarship. Now, I am also speaking today in a personal capacity. I decided to talk today about what was the topic of my DFIL, and that's state control over private military and security companies in armed conflict. Guy actually was not my primary supervisor for my DFIL. My primary supervisor was Dapo. But I had the privilege of having Guy supervise me for a relatively short time towards the very end of my thesis when Dapo went to Yale. Now, many supervisors, or substitute supervisors, as it were, in that situation, probably would have maybe read a chapter at best, dipped in and out, skim read, had a few meetings, but not really engaged with the project. I'd essentially written most of my thesis by that point. It was really near the end. But that's not what happened. Guy put in a huge amount of work to get on top of the entire project right at the end. And he gave me invaluable advice on every chapter, particularly the human rights aspects. And not only that, even after Dapo got back, Guy continued to help me in my preparation for my Viva and then on the road to publication. And since then, he's remained a fantastic mentor in my career and all its twists and turns <laughs> since I've left Oxford. And I very much hope that that continues. So thank you so much for all that work. It really was, as I said, above and beyond the call of duty and it definitely made my thesis much stronger. So thank you. Now, for my uh, presentation today, I'm going to give you an overview of the modern private military and security industry, explain a little bit about what these companies do, a bit about the history, and then I'll look at some of the concerns surrounding the industry and what role international law can play in addressing those concerns. And I understand I have about 12 minutes, so <laughs> we'll see how we go. But throughout history, there's been a continuous struggle to contain violence within collective structures and to link violence to the will of the people. But since the mid-19th century... The prevailing view has been that the state is the best institution through which we can contain violence and link violence to the democratic will of the people. This, of course, is Max Weber's classic definition of the nation-state, a human community that successfully claims a monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force. There are always exceptions to this, of course, but I think it's fair to say that this has been the starting point of our discussions for a very long time. And we've developed a range of 
normative frameworks and accountability structures based on this fundamental norm of public security. The huge boom in private military and security companies that we've seen over the last 25 years, that's really challenged this basic norm of public security. It's challenged the conventional assumption that the legitimate use of force is the exclusive domain of states. Today and for the last two decades, tens of thousands of contractors around the world have provided military and security services to a range of clients, including states, private companies, NGOs and the UN. Many of these companies have operated in situations of armed conflict, where they've worked alongside military forces, often providing many of the same services or similar services or activities, we should say. Now, this isn't to say that private military, private security actors are new. Of course, they're not. We've always seen private military and security actors throughout history. But there's no doubt that the scale and sophistication of the modern industry is unprecedented. This has been particularly evident in Iraq and Afghanistan. At the height of those conflicts, and for many, many years during those conflicts, the US Department of Defense had more private contractors working for it in Iraq and Afghanistan than troops. It's still the case today, even though uh, the overall numbers have dropped off, of course. So you'll see there, I've taken it up to 2011, which was when uh, we started to go down, at least in Iraq, and then soon after that in Afghanistan. <clears throat> so the DOD operations in Iraq and Afghanistan were dependent on these contractors. There's, there's little doubt about that. And the expenditure by the Department of Defence... <coughs> sorry. Uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, 2005 to 2010, $146 billion. So that was 18% of the total DOD war spending in those theatres for that period. So this is just to give you a sense of the enormous scale of this industry and particularly its impact in Iraq and Afghanistan and particularly for the United States. So let's take a closer look the modern industry. What exactly do these companies do? Does anyone know what this company is? Does anyone recognise it? This is what used to be known as the artist formerly known as Blackwater. So it was Blackwater, it changed its name once, it's now changed its name again. So now it's Academy. This is just a classic example of a website of one of, these one of these companies. You'll see they offer a range of services, very professional website. This is fairly standard. If we look across the industry over the past 25 years, we can broadly group these services at these companies. I'll call them PMSCs, Private Military and Security Companies, because I know we all like acronyms. We've established that today. So these PMSCs, we can divide their services into four broad categories. Offensive combat in the 1990s, I'll talk about that a bit in a moment. We don't see that anymore today on the open market. Military and security training, advice, other 
expert services, shall we call them, armed security services, which is probably uh, your classic Blackwater image that you have in your mind, and military support and logistics. And you'll see, this is again looking at the Department of Defence, this is in Iraq 2010, overwhelming majority of contractors on the DOD books in Iraq, and it was the same in Afghanistan, are providing military support. So we're not talking about armed contractors. When we look at the figures of DOD contractors in Iraq that are often bandied around, uh, a lot of them generally are providing support services, logistics, transport, putting up bases, etc. So we need to keep that in mind. <clears throat> so looking at the four categories of service that I mentioned before, offensive combat. Many of you will remember in the 1990s that the modern private military and security industry really burst into the international spotlight with two companies, Executive Outcomes, a South African company, and Sandline International, a British company based in Britain. Both of those companies were involved in the Sierra Leonean and Angolan civil wars. They were hired by the government in those wars and it's fair to say that they played a key role in bringing the rebels to the negotiating table and quelling, uh, quelling those conflicts. So some commentators were very positive about this. Some commentators were praising the companies, saying they were very professional and they were willing to take on these messy tasks of intervention that developed states, the United Nations wasn't willing to, um, weren't willing to take on, at least at that point, so soon after some of the other horrors. So some commentators praised these companies, but of course there was also a very negative reaction uh, in many quarters and in the international press. There was a lot of criticism in terms of uh, allegations of being mercenaries, uh, the mercenary label, I say allegations is a legitimate argument that, that they did qualify as mercenaries, uh, some of them at that time. So there was a lot of criticism. Many people were fundamentally opposed or at least uncomfortable with the notion of private offensive combat for profit. That basic idea for many people was just simply abhorrent. So we saw a very negative reaction in that sense. And then in 1997, both of these companies were involved in another controversial operation in Papua New Guinea. Particularly the Australians probably remember there was some negative press about that. There were also riots on the streets in the country, in Papua New Guinea. And so again, another controversy. And then we saw after that, executive outcomes uh, was clamped down in South Africa. They passed domestic legislation in South Africa, deliberately aimed at uh, cracking down on the domestic, on the private security industry in that country. And both companies then dissolved. So we saw a real shift after that in the industry as a whole. We saw a shift away from the provision of offensive combat services. And since that time, the industry has focused on the other three categories that I mentioned: military and security expert services armed security and military support. So turning to what I've called military and security expert services, military advice, training, this is just one example of a leading company that provides these kind of services, MPRI. You can see there they're offering military education and training. So this is an example of more general education and training, what we might call classroom type training, although that's not classic classroom. And other type, in other circumstances, you might have really specific 
uh, advice and training in an armed conflict situation directed at a specific uh, operation. So we, we have a fairly wide spectrum of activities there. We also have other what I would call expert services. Here we have um, mine clearance. Many companies offer this. Uh, very uh, dangerous but very um, uh, service requiring high level expertise. Another type of service in this category, the collection and analysis of intelligence. That's another area where we've seen a lot of outsourcing, especially in the US. I would also put in this category uh, interrogation. Interrogation of detainees. You probably recall the Abu Ghraib prisoner abuse scandal in Iraq in 2003. What you may not know is that around half of the individuals who were implicated in the abuse working for the Department of Defence were private contractors. And a subsequent report found that of that group of contractors, around a third had not received any formal training in military interrogation. So that was one of the incidents in the early days in Iraq that really raised alarm bells about the type of activities that were being carried out by these companies and the level of control, the level of training that these companies were getting. So turning to the third category, armed security. As I said, this is the classic Blackwater example. Uh, we saw these contractors will provide, it's fairly obvious, physical protection, often for an individual, like a high-level individual, or a, um, a property, like an embassy, or moving convoy security. The convoy security is by far the most dangerous. In 2011, just to give you an idea, in Iraq, Department of Defence had 17% of its contractors in Iraq were providing armed security services. So 17% out of um, those thousands, tens of thousands that we saw. So the industry, the companies, the states, the other clients that hire these uh, contractors for armed security services, they emphasise that this is defensive security. This is not the offensive security that we saw in the 1990s. So the industry has been very clear to draw this line between the offensive operations of the past and the defensive operations of today. That's been a very clear line. Of course, the situation can become blurred on the ground when we're talking about um, conflict situations, especially somewhere like Iraq, a low-intensity conflict. These contractors can uh, be drawn into combat situations, so it can become blurred. And just to give you an idea... This is from the Department of Defence uh, report looking in Afghanistan 2009-2010. So they found that contractors providing armed security services had a casualty rate 2.75 times higher than troops at that, for that period. So most, I think 73% of the contractors killed were providing security for mobile convoys. So that's really the most dangerous task. Of course, these are not included in, in um, official military death counts, so it, it's, it's just one of the concerns I'll talk about in a moment. And finally, as I said before, the fourth category, military support logistics. The bulk of the contractors working and providing these types of services can still come under threat and not necessarily the safest, the safest uh, profession. So what are the main concerns surrounding this industry? And what role can international law play to address them? Well, first, as I mentioned before, when we look at the sharp end of the industry, particularly offensive combat, 
there are a lot of moral concerns about the provision of these services for profit. There's some basic moral concerns about being motivated to fight by money. And those concerns haven't gone away, but they're really associated with the sharper end of the industry. So we have a, we have a spectrum of, of activities. We also see concerns raised about, about democracy, about the role of the citizen-state military relationship, about what role that plays in the, in the social contract, and about the government's legitimate use, legitimate control over force in a, in a democratic sense. So those, those issues are very important, and they're important for governments in particular to consider when they're thinking about what tasks, if any, they want to outsource. Where are they going to draw the line? They're important questions at that point. Other concerns that we've seen arise frequently, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, are more practical, and they relate to the level of control and the, the level of accountability. So they're more questions of regulation. So given that this is being outsourced, what measures can we put in place to make sure that there's adequate state control over what the companies are doing and that the companies or the contractors are held accountable if they engage in misconduct? So it's this, this last concern, this, this control and accountability question that I examined in my thesis. So I looked in particular at international law, states' obligations to control PMSCs in armed conflict. And in looking at these obligations, I focused on three categories of state. So what we can call the hiring state or the contracting state. The US is by far the biggest user of these companies, but many other states have outsourced a lot of their activities. The host state or the territorial state. So again, talking about armed conflict situations, we'd be talking about Iraq or Afghanistan, other conflict states. And then the home state, where the company is based or incorporated, what obligations do they have? Now, interestingly, if we look at a country like Iraq, they today would fall in all three categories. They, uh, they hire their own companies, they have a home to a lot of companies, local companies, and they're also a host state. So in that sense, we see overlapping obligations. So bearing in mind these three categories of states, I looked at two key questions. What positive obligation do states have to control these companies and to ensure that they're held accountable? And in what circumstances may, could a state incur international responsibility if a contractor engages in some sort of misconduct? The first question is, of course, a question of the primary rules of international law. And the second question is one of the secondary rules of international law. That's okay. So we'll finish without the PowerPoint, it doesn't matter. So in terms of the first question, which is states positive obligations to that's going crazy. Positive obligations to control private military and security companies in armed conflict. I looked at two key frameworks. I looked at other frameworks as well under international law, but the main ones were international humanitarian law, of course, being an armed conflict situation, and international human rights law. And within those frameworks, I asked what positive obligations do states have to control these companies and to hold them accountable? And as I said, I looked at all three categories of states. Now, under international humanitarian law, 
as you know, there is an obligation to respect and ensure respect for IHL. That's in Common Article 1, the Geneva Conventions and Additional Protocol 1. So I looked in quite a lot of detail about what that means, really fleshing that out. The RCRC has recognised this as a concrete obligation that can provide a, a baseline of conduct. And then there are, of course, more specific obligations under international law, under international humanitarian law in particular, that may provide, in certain circumstances, a higher level uh, required of the state. Now, it's important to recognise in relation to Common Article 1 that no court has a recognised responsibility or has found a state responsible, rather, for a violation of Common Article 1, simply for a failure to act. In Nicaragua, the ICJ found the US responsible for a violation of this obligation, but that was on the basis of its encouragement of the rebels. But they didn't exclude the possibility of uh, responsibility solely on the basis of a failure to act, because there is clearly a a positive obligation uh, under Common Article 1. In terms of human rights law... Unlike Common Article 1, which is not territorially limited, human rights law, of course, requires us to consider some preliminary questions. If we're going to identify what positive obligations a state has to control private companies, we first of all need to decide or need to determine whether human rights law, a particular human rights law framework, applies extraterritorially in that situation. And that will depend on the, which framework we're looking at. And then we have to ask, how does that interact with IHL in that particular circumstance? And again, that will be a fact-specific question. So once we've looked at those, those uh, preliminary issues, we can then identify the content of the positive obligation on states. And all of these positive obligations that I examined are obligations of due diligence. They're not absolute. So a state to take the action within its power... So, of course, if we're looking at Iraq in the midst of an armed conflict, they will have much less ability to take considerable action than they would in peacetime, and that's taken into account in the uh, assessment of the obligation. So the second question I looked at uh, is state responsibility. So there are essentially... Two pathways to state responsibility. First of all, there's where the contractor is acting as an agent of the hiring state. So if we think, for example, you may recall Blackwater contractors were involved in a massacre in Nyssa Square. A number of civilians were killed in 2007. They were working for the US. So we might say, in what circumstances is the conduct, the kill, those killings, is that attributable to the US? And that's as the state that's actually hired the, uh, the c- contractors. Now, the second possible pathway is where the state has a positive obligation to prevent or punish misconduct and the state fails to take the necessary steps to prevent or punish. So that one is applicable to all three categories of state. So we could look at the obligations on the home state, the obligations on the host state and the obligations on the hiring state because we're not just talking about direct attribution. And... These, this framework, these positive obligations, direct attribution, these are all recognised in the Montreux document, which was uh, released in 2008. That was, that was the result of an initiative between ICRC and Switzerland. A number of states uh, signed up to it. And so what are the conclusions from this? We can say that international law imposes 
clear obligations on states to take positive steps to prevent and punish misconduct by these companies and contractors. And states cannot evade international responsibility simply by outsourcing their military and security activities to private companies. So this provides an incentive to states to, first of all, consider very carefully what they want to outsource, where they draw the line. And second, when they do outsource, they need to take concrete steps to make sure these companies are acting under control. They need to regulate and they need to have accountability structures in place for cases of misconduct. And I don't have time to talk about it now, but I'm happy to uh, talk about it more in the questions. What types of action would we be expecting from states? And in this context, there are certain uh, initiatives ongoing at the moment, regulatory initiatives. You may have heard of the International Code of Conduct for Private Security Service Providers. That's one example. Uh, Voluntary code for the companies themselves. 708 companies have signed on. So states are looking at how to enforce that themselves. And states' engagement with those frameworks, perhaps incorporating the frameworks into contracts, setting up uh, regulatory bodies, that could help to fulfil their obligations under international law. Thank you.